Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication and remembering all those the vast variety of needs that are before us. If you have your Bibles this morning, I certainly hope you came prepared with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that you are ready to dig into 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, a couple of Sundays ago, I started the series in 1 Peter and intend to follow through with that. And so we'll begin uh, this morning. I as you're turning and finding your place there, I remember a story I heard of a British soldier. This was during the heat of, uh, of World War II when uh, Hitler's Air Force was bombing England, particularly London, the city of London, uh, repeatedly, night after night in that blitzkrieg uh, of uh, firebombs uh, every night just to, to try to cripple the resolve of that uh, lone European nation so that they would, like the rest of Europe, bow down to Hitler. And so on this particular night, there was, of course, bombs falling and neighborhoods being shattered. And, and uh, this soldier was making his way through a particularly uh, heavily bombed neighborhood where there were homes and churches that had been hit. And, and in the midst of the fire and the smoke and the rubble, he heard what he thought was the sound of a child crying. And so as he focused on that sound, he made his way over to where used to be a house standing. All that was standing there now was a, a portion of the porch and the steps that went to the porch. And on the steps sat a little boy and he had his hands, his face in his hands and he was sobbing uncontrollably. And the soldier made his way over to the little boy and, and seeing the dilemma there, the boy was there by himself and what apparently was behind him used to be his home. And, and he asked the, the boy, uh, in the midst of his crying, he asked the boy, he said, son, whose boy are you? And the boy looked up through his tears and said to the soldier, Mister, I ain't nobody's nothing. You know, I stand before you as we prepare to move into this portion of the, the epistle of Peter and, and say with a great deal of confidence to those of you who are authentic followers of Jesus Christ who have turned from sin and made a commitment to follow Christ obediently and to be a disciple of Christ and you are part of the family of God because God has chosen and elected you to be a part of His eternal family. I, I, I stand here today with a great sense of relief and celebration to tell you that you, in the eyes of God, you are somebody. More than that, you are a child of the King of the universe. You will always be someone highly special in the eyes of God. You'll never be nobody's nothing simply because of the amazing grace of God and His awesome mercy. And that's what we'll look at to some degree in this portion of Peter's first epistle in chapter 1. You may recall a couple of weeks ago I shared what I thought was the goal of the letter. And it's, and it's twofold really. It's to instruct and encourage believers to stand firm in our faith in Jesus Christ, immovable in, a, in the grace of God, while living triumphantly in the, as, as holy pilgrims in the midst of ostracism and persecution. The letter was written to Christians who needed encouragement. Written to Christians in the first century, but also you could transfer that. The very goal and purpose of that letter to the church then is the same to the church today. And Peter is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to you and I as pilgrims in this world, if you will, even in the midst of hard times and, and, and hardships and persecution, that we should be strong in our faith, remain firm in our faith, immovable in the grace of God, and live triumphantly as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so let's look at those first few verses together in chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, we talked about in the first message about how we come to understand the author. 
the first step of this message was introducing the author and, we, author, and we spent some time talking about the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter. And so now I want us to focus now more on the context and what I call understanding the circumstances to really appreciate what the Apostle Peter is saying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to gather some understanding of the context in which he's writing. Historically, we, most scholars say that the letter was written somewhere around 64, 65 A.D. Uh, coincidentally, that was right at the time that the city of Rome burned. Uh, history tells us that there was a massive fire that consumed a big portion of that capital city of the Roman Empire. And it's in that, against that backdrop that Peter is writing this letter to the early Christians. And it's also important to see right at the very beginning there that Peter is writing to Christians that he calls pilgrims. But, but specifically to Christians in these locations. And, and you'll see the, the cities that he identifies. And these are cities in Asia Minor, in northern Asia Minor. And, and if you look at the order of the cities, just like a mail carrier, I don't know about you, some of you may go to a post office box, but for those, the rest of us that have a mail box uh, sitting out there at the end of our driveway or street, uh, you'll notice that your mailman, or mail lady in our case, follows a pattern. She delivers the mail the exact same way every day. She starts at the same house in our neighborhood and she goes in the same order. And I, if I'm there in my study and I hear, I can usually hear a little Jeep truck, I can almost predict exactly where she is in the route so I can run down and let, put that last minute envelope in the mail. And, and so this letter was written to be an, an encyclical letter, and a letter that would be circulated. It wasn't written to one church. Peter intended it to be circulated on this route, just in the order it started out at Pontus and would end up in Bithynia, where the, the, after one church read it, they would send it via Curia to the next uh, city, where the church there would read it, the next one, and they would pass this letter with the same intention for all these churches. And so it, it speaks to uh, a number of Christians throughout northern Asia Minor. It's interesting. Because it's, it's this area, particularly you look at that last city, Bithynia. You may recall in Acts 16 when I, I, I preached through the, uh, the book of Acts. When Paul, on his second missionary journey, was, was seeking to go into northern uh, Asia Minor. Uh, you may recall the Spirit of God prohibited him. He wanted to go to Bithynia. He wanted to continue with his ministry up in that area. But the Spirit says, nope, can't go. Close the door. And it was right at, subsequent to that that Paul experienced his, what we call the Macedonian call. Where the Spirit of God said to Paul, hey, I want you to come over here into Europe. And so Paul never ventured up into this area of northern Asia Minor. But isn't it interesting that the, that the churches that the Apostle Paul with Silas and, and Timothy planted in, in Asia, in southern Asia Minor, and in Europe, actually spawned churches here. So it, that's the, the nature of the work of God. Now Peter, the Apostle Peter, has the privilege of ministering to these churches as he's writing to this area of Asia Minor. And so to, to appreciate the context of, of in which the letter was written, we look at the world in which the epistle was written. What was the world like? The, the social, political, geographic factors that, that, that help us to grasp the, the essence of this letter. The civilized world at this time, in first century A.D., was under the tight-fisted and deranged, unstable rule of the Roman Emperor Nero. Nero had a few screws loose, I guess you might say, as Jerry Clowers would say, his bread wasn't quite baked. But anyway, you know, historians tell us that it was Nero who had this insatiable desire to build and, and, and so when he had finished all the building complexes in, in Rome and projects in Rome that he could build, there was no space to build, he, he came up with the ingenious plot, well, I'll just burn part of it down so we can build some more. And hence the, the fire that destroyed a good portion of Rome. Now, it's interesting that historians tell us also that he had to have a scapegoat to blame this massive fire upon, so who did he choose? But the Christians. And hence the great persecution that we see Peter addressing, even as early as verse 7 in chapter 1 there, where Peter talks to those, speaks to the Christians about their faith being tested by fire. 
And then later we'll see more as he, he examines that with, the, uh, with those early Christians. So we capture a glimpse of some of the persecution that they are enduring. So these Christians are in a very unstable world. These Christians are in a pagan world. They are dealing with uh, uh, paganism. So, so it's not just what's going on around them that matters, but also the spiritual climate at the time that Peter is writing this letter. Because remember, these are Gentiles and, and Jewish Christians who are gathered together in these churches. Many of these people, particularly the Gentiles, came out of pagan backgrounds. And, and they've been converted into Christianity. So they've been bombarded, if you will, with temptations from within to revert back to some of their old pagan ways. Paul had to deal with this constantly with different churches, particularly the church at Corinth. And Peter, I'm sure, is writing to Christians to encourage them to stay true to the faith and not yield to these internal temptations to, to revert back to paganism. But also there's pressures from without because the world is spiritually dark and dangerous in which they live. They're having to deal with Nero. They're having to deal with increasing persecution against the church. And so here they are. And, and they're under great pressure externally as Christians to renounce their faith. To turn from Christianity and to join the rest of the civilized world in bowing down to the emperor and worshiping him as a god. And of course those who refused to do so found themselves in prison if not dragged into the gladiator arenas and they are tortured or, or put in there with wild animals and some, as history tells us, were encased in wax alive and used as human candles to light the gardens of Nero's garden around his palace. So this is what the Christians are facing in this time. But ladies and gentlemen, this is sort of where our world is heading today for those who are authentic, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're drifting in that direction. And I don't tell you anything that you don't know. Brother Richard Stovall, a few weeks ago, in his message in Philippians, cited chilling statistics and real stories of faithful believers who are being persecuted even today for their faith in Jesus Christ in other countries. And sadly, you see this trend beginning to develop here in the United States of America. We need to be aware. We need to take note. I listened to Dr. Al Mohler. Pastor Tim put me on to Dr. Mohler's briefing every morning. It's a news summary and evaluation from a world Christian worldview. And, and repeatedly, Dr. Mohler, who is the president of Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary, repeatedly he makes reference to this, this how our nation is embroiled in what he calls a moral revolution. And if you don't see it, ladies and gentlemen, you don't watch the news. You don't listen to the news. You don't read the news. You don't, you're not watching what's going on around you. You're virtually got your head in the sand because there has been and, and it's intensifying a massive moral revolution. And at the heart of this, at the heart of this, it's becoming more and more apparent with the decisions made by our Supreme Court and some of our congressional leaders and states. Just look at what's going on to the state of North Carolina simply because we chose to pass a bill called HB2, which is just a common sense bill. And look at the intense pressure that is coming against our legislators. And I'm sorry to say it's coming against you and me and every Bible-believing Christian across the nation. And it's all because... There, there is a battle going on in our nation right now between religious rights and what is emerging as erotic rights. And you watch and see how this begins to intensify. Very similar to what the context in which Peter is writing there. Let's talk about the, the, the likely recipients of this letter. As I pointed out, the, the letter circulated along this path in northern Asia Minor. These are fellow Christians. Like I said, some are Jewish background, some are Gentiles, but they're in these churches together serving and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Peter is writing to them to encourage them, to instruct them, to inspire them. He understands the persecution that they're against. We'll see that beginning in chapter 3 in more detail. These are Christians who have been scattered throughout Asia. You'll notice that in, in, in there in, in verse 2 that Peter talks about these Christians, rather in verse 1 rather, as pilgrims. 
as, as, as being aliens almost in, in this uh, uh, pagan world in which they live. These are Christians who have been scattered. They're spiritual aliens in a hostile world. And that's not too unlike our own circumstance. You may recall in Colossians, when I was preaching the series on, on heaven, you remember I had an opening message out of Colossians in chapter 3. Listen to the language of the Apostle Paul. See how similar it is to what Peter is using. When Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, If then you, have, you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Paul says, you are not citizens of this world. You're just passing through. You're aliens, if you will, in this pagan world in which we live. So were these Christians here, who were Peter addresses as pilgrims, and simply passing through. As we, as we look at this letter also, it's important that we appreciate the theology that the Apostle Peter brings into this letter. Peter comes out of the gate, right out of the gate, with some very profound, deep theology. And I want us to look at that. First of all, as we begin the letter, first thing he conveys is the authority of God in which it is written. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Very similar to the opening of a number of Paul's letters, if you will. When Paul opens up the letters of Rome, Romans and Corinthians and, and the letter to Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Timothy and Titus, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter wants to reiterate, it's not him that's speaking. As much as it is the very Spirit of God speaking through him as an apostle. One who has experienced the res resurrected Christ. One who has been given authority by the Lord. Great authority. Let me just take you back to the Gospel of Matthew. I want you just to see very briefly in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel how this came to be. In Peter's very early commissioning. In the commissioning of those early disciples. In chapter 10, it tells us in Jesus' ministry, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, in verse 1, He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles, did you notice the terminology shift from verse 1 to verse 2? Same men, but yet now... Matthew calls them apostles. They were called as disciples and now commissioned as, as, as apostles. Jump down to verse 5 there in chapter 10 of Matthew. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Eventually they would. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, the gospel started with the Jews. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons freely. You have received freely give. Did you see? Did you sense the power, the authority that the Son of God was, in pla was placing upon these men? As his apostles, he was sending them out with the power to heal the sick. The power to, to cast out demons. But also, he was sending them with the power to preach the gospel. The good news. To speak on behalf of the Lord himself. And that's what Peter is saying through this letter to the churches there in Asia Minor. He's speaking with the authority of Christ himself when he says, Peter, an apostle... One who is sent. One of the original. And you know, whenever the apostles are listed in the, in the New Testament, Peter, Simon Peter, is always listed number one. As if to suggest just a sense of preeminence to his role in that group. Peter always is list, listed 
first. But as we read further in that introduction there, we'll see the, the deep theology, that, this profound predestination and Trinitarian theology that emerges here as Peter goes on, beginning in verse 2. He's, he's writing to the pilgrims, if you will, of the dispersion. He calls them the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter tells these Christians, you aren't here just by happenstance. You don't just wear the label of Christian simply because you made a decision. You are distinguished as a child of God because the God of the universe, the Father, the head of the Holy Trinity, chose you. Now this is not a brand new concept because you can go back into the Old Testament even to the book of, of Deuteronomy, and you will find there, even when God was beginning to choose the nation of Israel to be His people, of all the nations, God chose an unlikely group of Hebrews who happened to be descendants of Abraham. In, De in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, listen to how He words it. For you are a holy people, speaking of Israel, to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is not a concept that's unique to, to Peter. Paul used the very same concept even in Romans 8.33 when he referred to Christians as the elect. You have been elected by God. We have a church seminar coming up in October that I think will be very interesting. It speaks of the Reformed theology and Pastor Tim is going to be uh, facilitating that and, and I'm sure in the midst of the discussions we'll be talking about the whole concept of predestination, the elect. But let me tell you, it's biblical. From the Old Testament through the New Testament you see references that make it quite clear that we have been chosen by God. And when it says here, that according to the foreknowledge of God, some, some critics try to say, well, that just means that God looked down through the corridor of time, being God and, and being timeless and, and, and all-knowing. He looked down through the corridor of time and He saw the ones who would eventually choose to follow Him and then He just accepted them as His. No, folks, this is not what it means. It means that before the foundation of the world, before the dawn of history, just as when God determined that Christ would come and die on a cross to pay the price. Listen, all of that was settled before the world was created. And so was your eternal destiny and my eternal destiny. God foreknew and He predetermined before the world was formed long, long ago that you would be chosen to be a part of the family of God. Listen to what Paul says you may recall over in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 3, this is how Paul phrases it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just, listen to verse 4, just as He chose us in Him, speaking of Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Wow! Peter doesn't just mince words. Peter doesn't save the good stuff for later. He comes right out with the big kahuga. And I don't know what that really means, but I hear that expression. But he comes right out with some very profound, solid theology to say, Hey, listen, the thing that you need to know as followers of Christ, as citizens of the kingdom of God, you are absolutely special to God. So special that He chose you long before you knew Him. And therefore you belong. And this great act was an act of the Trinity. It's very clear there in chapter 1 verse 2. He says that the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the sanctifying. God chooses who is going to receive Him and be a part of His eternal family. But the Spirit then once we have been moved by the Spirit to, to, and convicted of our sins and we repent of our sins and we turn our back on our sins. All of this is the work of the Spirit of God in us. 
and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God begins that sanctifying work of setting us apart. And how does He do that? Because of this, the blood of Jesus Christ. So you see, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son working in conjunction in this marvelous miracle that we call the transformation of the believer, the, uh, the conversion experience. Also, it's important that as we look further, talking about describing the Christian's unique predicament, I go back to what Peter referred to there in chapter in, in verse 1. He calls these early Christians pilgrims who, uh, of the dispersion. As you well know, Christians were dispersed from Jerusalem uh, because of the persecution of the Jews. And now all Christians are being persecuted, so there's a great dispersion. Christians are on the move. They can hardly settle down. And they're, they're, they're like, like pilgrims are coming to this country centuries ago, you know, looking for a new home. And, and so as we look at this, I think about the writings of Hebrews in, in the book of Hebrews. Listen to chapter 11, how, how the writer of Hebrews uses the same similar terminology and expression as he talks about the saints of, of, of old, the Old Testament patriarchs, if you will. Listen to Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 13. He says, Those or these all died in faith. Speaking of Abraham, speaking of Sarah, speaking of, of Moses, and speaking of, of, of Enoch and, and the Old Testament saints. He said, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers, get that, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Isn't that amazing? Even as far back, thousands of years ago, when God began to work in the hearts of those Old Testament saints, they realized that God had a plan. And God's plan was not for them, ultimately, to settle down here on earth. Oh, sure, they would have a home. Sure, the nation of Israel would ultimately have a promised land. But, but they realized they were simple strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Abraham knew that and realized that. Enoch realized that. All the patriarchs who, cho who chose to put their faith in God understood that this world was just a temporary dwelling place, but their home was in a beautiful and a wonderful, eternal place, a city that God would create for them. And hallelujah, at the end of our, mess our series on heaven, we got the experience firsthand right out of the Scriptures in Revelation 21 and 22. We saw the fruition of that wonderful promise when the eternal city of God, the new Jerusalem came down out of heaven and, and sat upon this the new earth that God created, surrounded by the new heaven and the whole domain of the dwelling of God was made manifest in those wonderful prophetic words. We have a home too. We have a glorious eternal home. The same promises that God has made to the Old Testament saints and to these New Testament saints here in 1 Peter, God is making the same promise to you and me. We do have an eternal home. We have a glorious home that will be free of sin and all the effects of sin. And those of us who are divinely chosen to be citizens of heaven will experience heaven in its eternal reality one day. So now as we move on in verse 3, having come to some better understanding of the circumstances of the letter and maybe a little better appreciation for the theology of those first verses in the letter. Let's talk now about enjoying the doxology. And that's just what we're getting ready to walk into in verse 3. A doxology. I know we sometimes will sing the doxology and it's beautiful words of praise and, and honoring and, and lifting up God. Peter does the same thing in words beginning in verse 3. The apostle launches into praise focused on the divine truth. Don't miss this. On the divine truth. Because merciful God has begotten us again. 
Let me say it again. Because merciful God has caused you and me to be born again. Don't lose track of that. Because merciful God has begotten us again, we are recipients of three particular blessings that Peter wants us to see very clearly here in the Scriptures. Because merciful God has born us again or caused us to be born again, we are recipients of the, of the believer's hope, we are recipients of the believer's inheritance, and we are recipients of the believer's salvation. And we'll look at those as we bring the message to a close. First, we talk about the believer's hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us, or your translation may see, born, made us born again to a living hope. As I take you back to Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what Paul says. And it's amazing as we look at the parallel of the language of Paul and, and Peter in their letters in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Listen to what Paul says. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And Peter is saying, in essence, the same thing. This wonderful hope that we have is initiated by God the Father. It's through His divine election that He has chosen us. And I think it's interesting because Peter starts right out in verse 3. He uses a word that we, we're very familiar with, blessed. But it's important that you, as you look at that and you look at the original Greek translation of that, Peter's not using the same word for blessed that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 5 in that very popular Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus used the word blessed in, in the Greek, it meant happy. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Happy are those. However, Peter is using intentionally a different form of the word for blessed. And it means to praise. To give honor to. It, in fact, it's the very word from which we get our English word, eulogy. When you eulogize somebody, you're speaking of positive things and giving credit to that person. And Peter's starting out right out of the gate. He said, blessed be, praises to our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of His abundant mercy. God, some people talk about mercy, but we don't really understand mercy. Mercy is simply the, the, the fact that God withholds from us the judgment that we deserve. And sometimes as parents or grandparents, when we have a child that's unruly and, and, and they are truly guilty and maybe deserving of, of punishment, but for some reason we ought to withhold that punishment, I doubt your child says to you, praise you, blessed are you mom and dad for withholding, being merciful to me. They're just glad that they didn't lose any skin. But the fact is, God exhibits not just mercy, but abundant mercy. Isn't that what the writer of Lamentations says in chapter 3, verse 22, when he says, because of God's faithful love, we do not perish because His mercies never fail. Morning by morning, they are new. Great is His faithfulness. Great is the, the mercy of God that has caused us to be recipients of this wonderful mercy. Again, look at the parallel between the language of Peter as I go back over to Ephesians, but chapter 2 this time. Listen to how Paul puts it in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 4. He says, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved. Do you see how God's mercy is interwoven with the benefits that you and I receive? Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, you and I would not receive not one of the many blessings of God if it were not for the fact that our God is merciful. 
These people that try to accuse God of not being fair. Listen, you don't want God to be fair. Because the fact is we're all guilty by virtue of the fact that we're under the curse of sin. We are all condemned in our sins. We all face the hot wrath of God separated from Him in a place called hell for eternity. That's what we are due But it's the mercy of God that holds back that that awful judgment upon us. And instead of the judgment, His mercy bestows upon us privileges, blessings, a hope, a living hope. Oh, the world has hope. But you know, all the hope of the world is doomed. Eventually, will come to an end. All the things, all of the agencies, all of the movements, and all the personalities that the world puts its hope in. John tells us in his first epistle, in chapter 2, this world and all the lust of it are passing away. There is no lasting hope that man can offer. Don't let anybody try to tell you. Oh, we've got to put our hope in the government. We've got to put our hope in the goodness of man. We've got to put our hope in these great, wonderful, benevolent causes. Listen, I'm all for getting involved in helping out with hurting humanity. But our hope better not rest in anything of this world. And God, by His mercy, has given to you and me through our faith in Jesus Christ a wonderful living hope that will never, ever ever perish. This wonderful blessed hope to believers is initiated by God the Father. But notice also how Peter there in verse 3 makes it quite clear that it's consummated by God the Son. Initiated by God the Father, but consummated by God the Son. Jesus had a vital part to play in this, and His part was His bodily resurrection. You understand That had Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not come out of that tomb on the third day, there would be no living hope. Period. Islam would not have provided it. Buddhism would not have provided it. Shintoism, Confucianism. None of those man-made religions and philosophies would have provided it. The hope of mankind rested on the Son of God and His resurrection. You may recall in John's Gospel in chapter 11 when Jesus came to Bethany to comfort Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus had died and of course they came to Jesus and they were distraught and bereaved and and, and Jesus told Martha, Martha, your brother will live again. And she says, I know he'll live again In in the resurrection as if it were some future event. I wish I could have been there that day. Wow. To see the living Son of God look into that distraught woman's eyes and say to her, Martha, I am the resurrection. When you look at me, you are seeing the embodiment of the resurrection. Because he who dies and believes in me, even though he dies, he will live again. Martha. And we know that the Scriptures tell us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to the hope that we have in Christ. Did not the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 17, he says, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He's writing to Christians. Then then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished forever. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men to be most pitied. Paul says you take the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the Son of God out of that grave on the third day and there is no hope. But hallelujah, we celebrate the reality of the fact that God's Son was indeed after He was crucified on that cross and He died and was buried in that tomb. On the third day, He was resurrected by the power and the glory of God. He walked forth as a clear indication that he, His, His precious blood was sufficient to pay the price 
for the redemption of all of our sins. And because of that, Christians live with a wonderful, wonderful living hope. The next blessing that Paul Peter talks about in verse 4, there in 1 Peter, after having spoken of the believer's hope, he talks about the believer's inheritance. I know some of y'all might be poised to inherit multiple thousands and millions of dollars in land and, and real estate, real estate and, 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 and all those things. But you, you know, I don't really get into earthly inheritances <clears throat> for a couple of reasons. That's not where I want to put my confidence in the future. And the second reason, I'm one of 11 children of a poor dirt farmer. So I realize there ain't going to be a big check waiting on me. Uh, for my dad goes on to be with the Lord. But you know what? That's alright. That's okay. Because of, because of the diligence of my parents as faithful followers of Jesus Christ through the years from the time I was a baby to the time I left their home to go to college, they never ceased in, in teaching me and, and leading me and modeling for me faith in Jesus Christ. And I stand here today to, to tell you that because of their faithfulness, because of their diligence in training me up in the way of the, of, of the Lord, listen, I don't have to desire an earthly inheritance. I've got an inheritance that is everlasting, that is eternal, that Peter helps us to understand. It is a grand and a glorious inheritance, and it is in the very presence of God. Paul talks about this same thing in Ephesians in chapter 1. In verse 11 he says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Listen, we have an inheritance. We have a glorious inheritance. Listen to how Peter describes that. He says, we have an inheritance that is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It does not fade away. Listen, this wonderful inheritance that is ours that is brought to us through the wonderful shed blood of Jesus Christ as a result of the hope that we have. It is a wonderful inheritance that you and I will enjoy forever, for eternity in heaven. And unlike anything else that you possess in this world that is subject to the government's tampering, I don't, I don't put anything past the federal government, ladies and gentlemen. You think your social security is safe? You think... Your 401k is safe. If they need it, they'll get it. There's no inheritance on this earth that is safe. But Peter says, you have an inheritance that is bestowed upon you through your faith in Jesus Christ. That, look what he says, not only is it incorruptible and undefiled, but he says it is reserved in where? Heaven. Hallelujah. The federal government can't go there. I know Fort Knox is supposed to be the, maybe the most secure place on earth. But folks, it doesn't hold a candle to the presence of God. Our inheritance there in heaven is in the safest place in all of creation. That which has been promised to you and me by the word of God. That which has been bestowed upon us through our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. It is there. It's right there. When you get there, it will be there. It will always be there. And no one can touch it or tamper with it. God has promised you that. Amen. It's reserved for you and me. And it's gaining interest every day. Well, I, I can't say that scripturally. But make sure that you put your hope where it belongs. Make sure your inheritance is where it belongs. Do you think this is what Jesus, I believe it was, I believe this is what Jesus meant over in Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking to those people there and preaching about the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Jesus said make sure that you put 
your treasure in heaven. You know, one of the problems I think that plagues most 21st century Western Christians is the fact that too many Christians are so preoccupied and so obsessed with their earthly treasures that they lose sight of their eternal inheritance. We forget. We don't have to clamor and hoard and, 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 and worry and scratch to accumulate on this earth so that we can be secure. Listen, God will provide. Did Jesus not tell us that in Matthew chapter 6? Verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these things will be added unto you. Seek His righteousness first, and then all these things will be added unto you. There's nothing in the Word of God says you need to go out there and amass for yourself some great collection, treasure. Finally, finally, we looked at the believer's hope and we looked at the believer's inheritance, but in verse 5, here in 1 Peter chapter 1, as we close out, I want to see the believer's salvation. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. We've already talked to We nailed that down, haven't we? I wish we had. I wish we had. You and I know that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. It's a gift of God. Lest any man should try to boast. We understand that. You've heard me say that salvation is not just an event. Well, you can just simply at some point in your life that you can carve out a date and write it on a card and say, oh yeah, I was saved. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I signed a card. I joined the church. Hallelujah. I got my passport to heaven. I'll tuck that in a safe place and I'm going to go live my life like I want to. Folks, that's not salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches salvation is. Do you understand salvation is a process? Yes, there is a time. There is a moment. When the Spirit of God convicts your heart and my heart of, of our sinfulness. And yes, there is a time when the Spirit of God convicts us to turn our back on our sins and repent of our sins and to turn and choose to follow Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something. That's not the end. That's the means. That's the beginning. You're just beginning. Did not the Apostle Paul tell us as Pastor Tim preached just last Sunday in, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. He says, work out your salvation. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. Pastor Tim made it quite clear. In the context, it's written in the imperative mood. It is an order. It's a command. Every day you wake up and you put your socks and shoes on. If you do wear socks and shoes, if you wear moccasins, God bless you. But I don't care what. But when you get dressed to go and to face the world, let me tell you something. The thing that ought to be on your mind is this is another day that I have the opportunity to work out my salvation. To live out my salvation. Do you understand? The Bible teaches us that salvation is a process. There's a past. That time when you made that decision under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But that's the past. The present is you are right now, if you are a responsible, genuine follower of Jesus Christ, you are consciously working out your salvation as you study the Word of God, as you pray, as you seek to obediently follow the Lord, as you seek to be a witness to Him. You are daily working out your salvation. You are demonstrating that what you did back in the past was the real deal because it's manifested in the way you live your life right now. But ladies and gentlemen, there is a future element. We have the justification in the past. We have the sanctification that's going on right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. But hallelujah, there is a glorification aspect to this. There's a future aspect to this wonderful gift of salvation. And Peter tells us there in verse 5, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Look what he says. Ready to be revealed when? In the past? In the present? No. He says in the last time. The day that you leave this earth and you step over into glory, into the presence of the Lord, you will see the absolute fulfillment the fruition of your salvation process, it's called glorification in which God bestows upon you the fullness of the likeness of Christ. You will be absolutely free of every contaminating effect of sin. There will be no sin whatsoever. You'll be perfect. You will see the Lord and hallelujah, we will be like Him. And we will be eternal living creatures in the very presence of God in that eternal home where we have our eternal inheritance forever and forever. God is the one who ensures this because Peter says, 
you who have this are kept by the power of God. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Because there's all kinds of enemies out there who would love to undo your salvation. The devil, the demons, the world, the unbelieving crowd around you, those who are under conviction because of your righteousness, oh, they love nothing more than to just dismantle your salvation. Oh, I'm so thankful to God that my salvation is not dependent upon my strength and my knowledge and my ability. But Peter tells us, your, your hope, your salvation, it is being kept by the power of God. Through faith. We have a part in that. It depends upon the power of God, but it relies upon the believer's persevering faith. We must maintain faith in the Lord. We must continue to practice our faith in the Lord. God will empower your faith. He will strengthen your faith. Just as He did with the man that had the son that was, that was um, embodied by demons. And, and, and Jesus told him that, that if his faith was strong enough, that, that this demon could be cast out of his son. And the man confessed to the Lord. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when your faith needs strengthening, Christ is there. The power of God will undergird. But the thing is, you've got to have faith. You've got to trust in the Lord. You've got to exercise Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Every day that you breathe, you've got to say, Trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not upon my own understanding, but acknowledge Him in all my ways and He will make my paths straight. I'm not trusting in me. I'm trusting in the Lord. My faith is in Him. God will energize your faith to sustain you every day of your life until He takes you into glory where you will be absolutely glorified. And your faith, your salvation will be totally perfected. That ought to make you feel like somebody. I remember a Christian study called Search for Significance. I don't know why I keep knocking that off. And it combats a lot of the lies that the world sends our way to try to undermine our confidence in who we are as children of God. But I remember the final statement that it makes in that, that wonderful study. It says something to the effect that there's never been another human being like me in the history of mankind. Nor will there ever be. God has made me unique. I am somebody. Not by my own merits. Not by anything that I could possibly do. But let me tell you something. You are somebody. In the eyes of the Creator of all of creation, you are somebody, somebody special. And God has ensured that and given us reassurance in His Holy Word. Don't you ever let the devil get on your shoulder or some demonic force or some ungodly person and try to convince you that you're so bad and you're not worth God's love and His grace. Let me tell you something. If Jesus Christ lives in your heart, you are somebody special. You are a child of the living God. Amen? Amen. I'm a child of, the God, of God. I'm a child of the Lord. And I have a home that's waiting on me in glory. And I have an inheritance that is absolutely perfect. They're kept by God. Stop and meditate sometimes on the wonderful promises that God's Word gives us every day as we live our lives as Christians. I want to pray and then I'm going to ask Pastor Mark to come and if you would, and Amy, if you will, play. And I'd like for us just to sing another hymn of that wonderful old hymn of faith that we sang earlier, Standing on the Promises of God. I like that old song. Hey, they used to sing that thing to the rafters would be lifted up in that little country church back home. None of us had any musical training, but we had Jesus in our heart. And we believed every word that that song said about we have some wonderful, unchanging promises that God has given us. Amen.